WBNE. Hello, and welcome to episode 186, all about the Lord of the Rings appendices, Appendix E, being the 186th part of That's What I'm Talking About. My name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time, and this week we are continuing our dive into the Lord of the Rings appendices with Appendix E. Today I'm joined by Maria Silenbach, host of the podcast Silmaria. Get it? Get it? <laughs> um, welcome, Maria. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. This is another instance of social media connecting me with people who are probably more intelligible than I am in certain topics. Uh, I tweeted if there were uh, Tolkien linguists or even just linguists who are also Tolkien fans. And you replied and you also have your own podcast, like I said, Silmaria. So um, I'm so glad that we were able to be connected. And thank you for joining me for, I think, what would otherwise be a very confusing part of the Lord of the Rings appendices. Yeah. Um, would you like to tell the listeners and I uh, how you got introduced to Tolkien? How, how was it that you first started either reading it or watching the movies? What was it that got you into it? Actually, it was the German audio play. Um, so there's an audio play from the 90s. And I... I think we got it from our uncle when I was about eight. And I absolutely loved loved it. It's very thrilling, I would say. And um, so I listened to that. And then I tried to read Lord of the Rings in German, but I failed because I simply don't like the, <laughs> I simply don't like the, the translation, the German translations. But um, fortunately, I'd also gotten the Cimmerillion from the library. And then I read the Cimmerillion and I was completely caught by it so I loved it right away which I think is not it's probably the most uncommon way to get to talking like via the Mm -hmm. similar but uh yeah that's awesome um that's so uh uh interesting that it was the Silmarillion uh that that you really caught that you really grabbed onto first because you're right that is kind of the more difficult part to read of Lord of the Rings and of Tolkien super even more impressive to me that Obviously, you speak uh, multiple languages. I, as an American, that's a very impressive trait because that's not uh, that's just not very common here in America. Um, so that's just super impressive to me that you read Lord of the Rings in a language that uh, in English, which I'm assuming was not your first language. So that's even more impressive to me. Um, did you like it when you finally could read uh, when you finally read the Lord of the Rings books and you you know kept going? I liked it way better than the German translation, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's still not my favorite book by Tolkien, though. So is the Silmarillion your favorite, then? Yeah, uh, like, I would well, I say specific parts of Silmarillion. So I'm a big fan of Turin, um, which, mm-hmm. again, might be a little bit, maybe a little bit uncommon. But, um, yeah, I'm I'm well better versed in the first age than in the th- third age. Um, still. But, like, yeah, the, the, the English... Reading the English original was kind of a revelation for me because it's so different than the German translations. And f- especially it's way more vivid, I would say. So the German translation is known, like the translation I read is known to be very um, 
old fashioned maybe i don't know how to, how to put it but the the yeah so i, I still That's like so interesting yeah the english original <laughs> love the rings yeah um i know that there were uh some issues that tolkien himself had with i think it was the hobbit um being translated and published in germany mm -hmm. um in the 40s because of the because of the second world war so i wonder if some of that um i wonder what the the history was with after the war with lord of the rings obviously you know coming out um in the 50s i think i wonder i wonder what the process of translating um it into german was like so i think that's so interesting that you were able to pick up on those those differences and that you found that some of the german translation wasn't uh didn't hold up to the english translation i believe if i remember correctly uh the son of a german publisher went to america like something of next exchange student i think he was and uh he found <laughs> discovered whatever lot of drinks and then he urged his father to publish it in german and it was while talking was still alive so talking had a conversation with the translator because talking knew german very well as we will also see in the appendix because he's using german examples and he actually made um suggestions for how to translate specific words and especially names and um, I think it was published in Germany in the 70s. That's the first translation or late 60s. I'm not sure. And then there's another translation which came out around the the publication of the movies. So early 2000s. Um, yeah. So we actually have two translations in German translations. <laughs> have you tried reading the uh, have you tried the second translation to see if that's more to your liking? Yeah, that's a very funny thing about the two translations, because as I said, the first one is Maybe the, the right word is stiff. It's a very stiff mm -hmm. language, very old-fashioned, very high-level language. And it lacks all the vividness, <laughs> as I call it, of, like, for example, the Hobbit talk that people laugh so much in a lot of the rings. Because the Hobbits also talk like Arag Aragorn, basically. And then the second translation was intended for younger readers. So they told the translator, please make us like a young <laughs> language that the younger, younger readers will like. And of course, if you tell this to a translators which is like in his 40s or 50s then <laughs> it didn't turn out well so the, the um the second translation is basically all hobbit talk so everyone talks hobbit talk and in the first translation everyone talks aragon talk and it's probably a mixture of both would be the perfect yeah. <laughs> way to do it but um yeah so i think i tried or at least i read parts of both translations but i don't like either of them <laughs> i'm sorry well maybe maybe one day the right translation <laughs> will come around and you'll you'll really enjoy it it'll be like um goldilocks and the three bears where <laughs> you know finally the last one is just right yeah well let's go ahead and start talking about uh appendix e which is writing and spelling Again, I decided to skip Appendix C and D because uh, I don't know how interesting they would be on the podcast because Appendix C is family trees. <laughs> so it would just be us going, you know, um, the old Took had uh, married a Adamanta chub and they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve children. Um, that might be a bit uh 
you know, I don't think that would be a great podcast episode. <laughs> um, and then the calendar, I'll be honest, just confuses me so much. The way that the calendar years uh, and time works in in Middle Earth and how Tolkien wrote it. Um, because in my opinion, he could have just, like so many things, he could have just left the concept of the calendar year alone and no one would have questioned it. No one would have said, oh, wait, I'm confused about this. But he decided to make the Shire calendar a little bit different and I, I can't get into it. If someone else wants to, that's great for them. <laughs> Well, actually, the calendars are like my second field of expertise when it comes to Tolkien. Do you want to um, give us a little explanation then, maybe, before we go into the the spellings and everything? What's Yeah, what's up with the calendars? Uh, basically, the thing is that the, the Hobbit calendar, at least, like the Hobbit year, overlaps in a way with our calendar, but not exactly. I think it's like seven or eight days that the Hobbit calendar, now I have to use my bad math brain, uh, it's either ahead or behind us. I'm not sure right now. Um, but like the, it's not completely overlapping. And <laughs> it's, very, it's very complicated. So I think the 22nd of September for Hobbits is actually our 14th or 15th September, depending on how you count. Um, I think they call it lapse years. Like the, the years that is every four years that you have an extra day. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what it sounds like. In, uh, at least in America, I don't know about other English-speaking countries, we call it a leap year. Oh yeah, leap year, that's, that's the word I was looking for. Something with an L in the beginning. So Hobbits have this as well, but because it probably is not the same year that we do it, and we don't know because there are no Hobbits to ask around us, we can't know when exactly, if the Hobbits are in a leap year or not. So we can't exactly calculate which day they have, and that's very frustrating. But what's, <laughs> what you can say definitely is that the days, like you can't say today is 22nd um, September in the, the Hobbit calendar. So it's the 22nd in our world. It's either the 14th or the 15th September that you have to celebrate Hobbit Day, basically. But I think that's hair splitting at the highest level of nerddom you can do. Um, yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> so maybe to be safe... Um, we should just celebrate Hobbit Day on, you know, September 15th and then again on September 22nd. I think we yeah. just have two Hobbit Days then. That's what I do. So I bake cookies twice a year. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, so Appendix E then is called Writing and Spellings. And this is where we start learning all the ways that you have pronounced words wrong as you've been reading Lord of the Rings. You get to the second to last appendices uh, and then you see, oh, I've been saying that name wrong this whole time or this word wrong. Luckily, I have had some people throughout the journey to correct me and guide me in pronunciations, but it's still... Um, <clears throat> It's hard to pronounce things correctly until you hear them spoken aloud. It seems to us that the the Hobbit words and names are pronounced basically as they are spelled um, and that there's nothing really tricky about them. He says, for example, Bulger has a G as in bulge and Matham rhymes with fathom. So it would appear that the the Hobbit languages, the specific words that they have come up with, um, are very simple and straightforward, and there aren't these hidden uh, uh, pronunciations within them. 
Um, which I think makes sense because the Hobbit hobbits are a simple people, <laughs> so they wouldn't have an overly complicated language. Yeah, and very uh, importantly, um, Tolkien also says here that he translated the original English, the, the original language of Lord of the Rings into English. Into English. So actually, the Hobbit names, as we will learn in the next appendix, are actually also translations. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny like yeah you will probably talk about this in the in the next episode but yeah it's one of my favorite parts about talking that he says oh actually my main heroes are not called as i call them which is so <laughs> again it just it, it's the kind of thing that i'm like tolkien you didn't have to you were the person that made this book you made this world these languages so to speak you didn't have to say oh well actually Uh, it was originally written in a different language that I then translated into English. <laughs> And yeah. that's what we're reading. We're reading the translated material. Yeah. There actually is a reason for this, which we may tackle when we come to the to the runes later in this episode. Um, so there's a reason why Tolkien styled a lot of drinks as a translation. He he really likes to create this illusion that yeah. the Lord of the Rings is a real, you know, mythology. That it's not something that he, as a you know English scholar, sat down and wrote. Yeah, I think that's the main reason. And then there's a second one, and that's that Tolkien was extremely unsatisfied with the way he had treated the names in The Hobbit. Um, There's a letter from 1937, the year The Hobbit came out, in which Tolkien says, oh, why did I use these Norse names for the dwarves? Uh, that's inconsistent with my invented word. And then he <laughs> he went on and said, oh, if the dwarves' names are Norse, then I have to translate the other languages as well, because then I can say, oh, the dwarves' names are actually just translations into Norse. So let's see how, like, the language of the dwarves is or the language not of the dwarves but of like the north east of middle earth is in relation to the language of the character of the language of the characters in the Lord of the rings and then it says oh it's actually like the relationship of english and north so let's translate translate the Lord of the rings into english and the the uh language of the realm into old english because that's the relation between the language of the third age like western and um And the language of the Hurrims, and wow, now it all makes sense. <laughs> You're like, okay, Tolkien, okay, that's the most Tolkien thing you can probably think about. It's Yes, definitely, <laughs> especially because when you read The Hobbit and all the dwarves come bursting into Bilbo's home, and, you know, to us, to, to the first time you're reading that, They just seem like silly names yeah. that he, he decided, oh, well, Nori, Ori, and Dory. That just seems like silly and they're rhyming. Um, and actually later on, he was so much more uh, complex with how with how he wrote those names and what he did with yeah. them. But to, uh, to the first time reader, to someone who doesn't know uh, how complex he got with the languages, it just seems like... He was just trying to be silly <laughs> with their names. <laughs> Definitely a talking you had problems moment. Yeah. 
It says, in transcribing the ancient scripts, I have tried to represent the original sounds with fair accuracy and at the same time to produce words and names that do not look uncouth in modern letters. So trying hard to be accurate to the original text that he is quote unquote translating from, but at the same time recognizing that sometimes the translation doesn't work out well in the in the new translation and so then you might have to make some adjustments there to make it work in the new translation something that doesn't surprise me is that he says hi elvin quenya has been spelt as much like latin as it sounds so latin for uh i would say a lot a lot of people like latin is this very ancient language that's been left in the past Mm. um a lot of a lot of languages have roots you know there are words that have uh, latin roots in them so i think that makes sense that quenya also being the elven language that was kind of left in the past and as they evolved and as certain events happened and wars happened and ken slayings happened <laughs> um quenya like lat was kind of left in the past and is something that uh they really only look back on to study and to see how it affects their languages that they currently use rather than trying to like no no one in our world walks around speaking Latin and there are very few people, you know, very few instances where people uh, speak Quenya or use Quenyan words. Mm-hmm. So the pronunciations <laughs> of stuff, so the consonants, <laughs> C always has the value of K. And I remember this was one of the first ones that I was corrected about because I was pronouncing Galadriel's husband Celeborn as Celeborn yeah. for a while. <laughs> I think um, that's where so we that come. was actually Celeborn. Yeah. yeah, it is. CH is only used to represent the sound heard in Bach, not the English church. So similar to your last name that you yeah. gave me a, uh, and I still probably didn't pronounce it uh, as as well as I could have. Um, in your introduction, but... Um, you did pronounce the second part very well, which actually is this Bach. So if you say the Bach as you did in my last name, then that's how the sound CH is supposed to be pronounced. And you did it very Perfect. well, oh. so you definitely can do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so not uh, not the English CH ch sound. Yeah. DH, this is another one that I just had... Uh, I had trouble saying throughout DH is more like a English TH th sound. And uh, the example he, he gives here, um, Karath, see, I still, I can't say it. Karathas, thras. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I just had such trouble saying that. And I think there's a couple other examples of that in the Silmarillion. Like I think, um, it might be Maedros, ma- ma- but I always yeah. ended up saying Maedros anyway. Um, <laughs> nothing I, I say is correct, uh, but that's okay. We're we're learning anyway. Yeah, where, where you, you maybe it's better to say not it's not correct, but it's not standard Elvish pronunciation because you know often there are things like um, pronunciation traditions, like yeah for Latin. So the way. Latin is pronounced traditionally in English is completely or in English speaking countries is completely different than what it's pronounced in German speaking countries. In both of 
a relic, you know. It's people have made up these traditions, and if, for example, in in in, in Germany or in German-speaking countries, there's this tradition to call the the friend of Frodo Sam, not Sam, um, which is like you would pronounce the name if you read it like in German. If you pronounce each letter, is it just pronounced in German? Even though, of course, people know that there are people who are called Sam in real life, and mm-hmm. I think that's completely valid. So it's it's a pronunciation tradition that shows that people have like lived inside the text and have deal- dealt with the text and so if if everyone pronounces a name incorrectly then that's okay because everyone knows what you mean right right yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yes that's a good point it, it's funny so some of these are uh explanations that i feel like i didn't necessarily need like this one uh about the letter f um Whereas at the at the end when it's at the end of a word, it sounds like the English of, so it's more like a it's more similar to a V sound. But as an English speaker, that's something that I didn't need an explanation about because that's just how I naturally speak anyway. Mm-hmm. So he's <laughs> having me overthink the letter F and the letter G is uh it, it seems like it's always going to be a hard g so um yeah. give get gil glad as opposed to the the soft g mm-hmm. i don't know if you have been if this has been a debate in other countries uh that don't speak english primarily but i know on the internet there's a constant debate about whether or not it's gif <laughs> yeah. or jif <laughs> Um, that soft G or hard G. So if we were to ask Tolkien, he might say it's gif. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it's... (laughs) If it's an elvish, if you're talking in elvish, you have to say gift. Yes, if we were to ask an elf, maybe then. (laughs) I think what talking is doing here, basically, is what the section reminds me of a lot is um, sections and grammars of Tolkien's time where they list the sounds of a language and then give an explanation for it. But because they didn't have the... um, very technical descriptions that linguists use today, they had to do all these kind of bypassing. So they would say like, so um, I'm currently writing a paper about Adunaic, which is the language of Numenor. I'm not sure if it's featured in Rings of Powers, but um, um, Tolkien is using some little odd sounds. And um, the way he describes them is very similar to how, for example, people who were writing grammars for Semitic languages at the time. So they say like, oh, you know, this is a very glutteral sound that is very hard to pronounce for English-speaking people. So just like squeeze your sque- squeeze your vocal cords together and say, oh, and then it's fine or something <laughs> like this. So from, a, from our point of view, it sounds completely ridiculous because today we have all these nice technical descriptions that didn't were that common in Tolkien's time. And this is what this section, as I said, reminds me of. So Tolkien is trying to explain um, for a lay audience his reasonings behind the spelling mm-hmm. and not be too technical. While he's completely technical, um, <laughs> uh, it's probably a problem here. So, um, yeah, you know, when you're very into something, a topic as an expert, then you start and you try, try to explain it to someone who has no idea about it whatsoever. You start to be like thinking like, oh, that's... What? How much do I have to explain? Like, yes, you have no because you have no feeling anymore for how much someone who is not into the topic knows. If you've been talking with colleagues about it all day, and uh, I think that's part of Tolkien's problem here as well. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of these, at least for the English language, the explanations are exactly how we say in English. So like Q-U, the combination of those words together is C-W, so qua, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or even um, K-W, you know, qua. So that's why we say quenya. R has a, is supposed to have a trilled R in all positions, So I guess putting uh, a little more emphasis on that R, but that's something that even when I was taking Spanish back when I was 11 years old, trying to like trill an R or add uh, a little more, um, you know, oomph behind it (laughs) was never something that I uh, could do successfully. I can't, I can't trill ass either. It's very sad. It's a, it's definitely something that, you know, some people can do and some people can't. So that's why I know a lot of people, uh, when they say Galadriel, they really, you know, uh, Galadriel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's something I can't do. I think those were really all the ones that I wanted to point out before we move on to the, the vowels and move further along. Was there something you wanted to talk about in this section? What do you find um, the most interesting? Oh, yeah, the, the H one, for example, I find also as a German speaker very interesting. So talking say H is pronounced like H, so not very spectacular, but um, <laughs> they say that HT is pronounced like SHT in German. And the thing here is that actually these two words that he gives the two German words have two different uh, pronunciations so it's echt but acht and the CHT after E is pronounced differently in German than after A and apparently it's something we are supposed to do in um, in Quenya as well at least that's how I understand this point here because I'm sure talking you about the different pronunciations of the CH in Germany in in German so for example the the name Telomechta if the guy was called Telo if the E was an R, it would be called Telomachta. And of course, this is, that's like, <laughs> for a German at least, that co- sounds completely differently. I'm not sure. Yeah, those are different, yeah, pronunciations. Yeah. You're definitely right. It's so fascinating to me how many, um, you know, Tolkien is saying this text was translated from, you know, this la- this language that he made up. But it, and it, there are so many other influences from other languages that it still has. So like, you know, that he's pulling from and that he's looking at. Um, so like German, Welsh, um, a couple, you know, a couple other things. Um, and then showing those variations within the other made up languages and saying, oh, well, in, uh, you know, this is how it's a little bit different in Dwarvish. Um, and this is how yeah. it's a little bit different from even just Quenya Elvish into, um, I think it's Sindarian is the other elvish Sindarian. Yeah. Yeah, there's also something in the same line, but I can't find the example. But what Tolkien is doing sometimes is he's saying, oh, this sound was pronounced this and this in elvish, but people in the third age actually pronounce it differently. And he's kind of building a bridge for us or for English speakers so it's so that the, the sounds are easier to pronounce. But Oh, yeah, for example, the T-Y one. Which which he says is sounds yes. like uh, tune, like the sound in tune in English. Mm-hmm. Then he says like the the sound of English uh, ch was very frequent in the restaurant, and it was usually substituted for it by speakers of that language. So he basically says if you can't say tune for whatever reasons, just say ch tune, and it's fine. Like he's as I said, he's trying to build this bridge so that the pronunciation is not too hard for us. 
Yeah. And again, I think that's also really accurate to how just the English language has adapted, where I speak English and so does Tolkien, but we have different, you know, pronunciations of things. So, for example, you know, uh, what he said about T-Y, tune, whereas he would have pronounced it more with that, yeah, tune. Tune, yeah. Yeah. But I pronounce it just tune. Yeah. Um, more with a, a, a hard T. Yeah. And then even going back, how he shows that the language and, you know, the first age versus the third age, things have changed in the way that, you know, things are pronounced by the time you get to the third age have changed is even true just with the the English language, where if you were to go back and even try and like, sit in the Globe Theater and watch a Shakespeare play, even though they're speaking English, it would sound so different to us than uh, a play that we would see, you know, today Mm -hmm. that uh, there are so many, the way that like languages and pronunciations and the way that people talk evolves. So uh, it's so slow as we're living it. But when you go back and look at things, it's so, so different. And seeing that, uh, that kind of real life reflected in a, a detail like language in this book that most readers wouldn't even think about or notice, but it's something that Tolkien mm. really wanted to pay attention to. I think what he's also trying here is, like he's saying, it's okay if you can't pronounce Elvish like an Elvish native speaker would do. It's okay because the people in the third age, they did it the same. They had the same problems as you had. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be overly stressed. That's a good lesson to keep in mind. Tolkien yeah. says, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Just do your best. And... <laughs> Um, and there's no way to like shout <laughs> every time someone is mispronouncing something. I don't think Tolkien yeah. would have wanted that. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I love that. Absolutely. So moving into the the, the vowels section, this one um, help did help me understand a couple things. Kind of like keeping in mind a couple names uh, of people and places, especially like in the Silmarillion. When I started the Silmarillion, the very first word uh, of the very first section is Ainulindale. <laughs> but <laughs> you open it and you read it and it's like all vowels. <laughs> and again, I don't know um, too much about, you know, other languages, but I know that at least in English, consonants are really important for helping you to put together how to pronounce a word and how to say a word. So when it was like all, it was so many vowels, I didn't quite know what to do at first. Two things that uh, specifically I wanted to point out about the vowels that I at least found interesting. He mentions that the final E is never mute or a mere sign of length as it is in English. Um, So Right, actually, as he is writing this, you know, the final E is never mute. So that's an example of it right there, where in the English language, the word mute ends with E, but it's not pronounced. Mm-hmm. In this language, the when an E is on the end, it usually is intended to be pronounced. And so a lot of times that will be signified with, I think it's an umlaut is when it's uh, two dots over a vowel. Yeah, um, it's it's called a, a, tr- a trima. The the sign is called a trima. The two dots. 
Oh, okay. Thank you. For example, I remember another one that was rough for me was um, Il Dalie. <laughs> uh, and that, that's another one I think that ends with the, the E with that, that symbol on it, signifying that you should pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one uh, is this grouping of vowels with an R. And those are actually pronounced all, it's something that I didn't, I had been saying this whole time, but I didn't realize at first that it was intentional. So E-R, I-R, and U-R in the English language would probably all be pronounced the same thing. So his examples are fern, E-R, fur, F-I, and fur, F-U-R. Yeah. But in in this text, in this language, they're all pronounced different. I couldn't think of an example that uh, that ends in ER, so maybe you can help me. But the other two, so Faramir is the IR in that instance is pronounced with an E-E-R. So Boromir, Faramir, and then U-R is O-O-R, so or, so um, like Dolgoldor. Mm-hmm. I think this part, again, is one of these piece we're talking to show and that he's maybe overthinking stuff because of she yeah <laughs> i think what he's basically saying is like pronounce the long vowels or like the vowel or the vowels with an r um after them just pronounce mm-hmm. them like the vowel as i explained before like say e like in machine and then do like an erotic accent <laughs> maybe so um maybe it's overthinking here so <laughs> yeah like it's it's air ear ur I can't roll the ass, but yeah, <laughs> he he could just have said that, but ex- instead he's like giving these little weird examples. Long explanation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was there uh, is there something in the vowels section that stands out to you from the um, linguist perspective? What I find very neat is the this uh, thing. Doubt, doubtless, many local varieties escape detection. Like he's basically saying, oh. We have no data on how people actually pronounced vowels in the third age of Middle Earth, but here's my guessing. It's so, <laughs> it's so cute uh, because uh, you know in English you have all these different, uh, this interesting stuff going on with vowels. Like people from different cities in the U.S., for example, pronounce vowels completely differently. And mm-hmm. so he's saying, oh, the same. We actually find the same uh, in Middle Earth, but we haven't detected it yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> that's a that's a good point, yeah. Um, where he says like long a and oak were also pronounced as a, like in say no, so a little more like a diphthong. Uh, but such pronunciation were regarded as incorrect or rustic. They were naturally usual in the Shire. So again, we're talking saying here is like pronouncing a and o as i and o is considered incorrect, but the hobbits do it anyway. So if you do it, you sound like a hobbit. It's fine. A hobbit, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of, yeah, nice to know that in some instances, if you, you know, if you technically mispronounce it, it's just, you're not mispronouncing it. You just have a Hobbit accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting, like from a perspective of history of linguistics to <laughs> to yes. see how talking is embedded in like description of sounds, um, in the tradition of description of sounds of his time. But probably, again, only fascinating for linguists who <laughs> like this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, to me, I'm reading this like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. And then, you know, I move on to the next section. <laughs> yeah. Whereas um, 
this is, you know, how you construct entire languages is all of these, you know, building blocks that are really important to pay attention to. Yeah. Moving on na- next to the stress or the accent, so to speak, of where where you place stress on some of these words. I was a little bit confused because as I it says that in words of two syllables, it falls in practically all cases on the first syllable. In longer words, it falls on the last syllable but one. So I guess um is that also the same as second the second to last? Yeah. So okay. But then uh I was reading some of these examples uh, that were later in-, in this second paragraph explained which are very confusing to me. So if we're going by that in longer words it falls on the second to last syllable, but then there's denethor. That's more than two syllables. Mm-hmm. But the stress is still on the first on the first syllable the den no thor yeah ecthelion is another (laughs) one um but that's a longer word and the emphasis is on again the second one so this is where uh the accent and like the stress in certain words even just in like regular english (laughs) uh confuses me a lot so i don't know if you have any insight that you want to provide about um where uh the emphasis is being put in some you know in in this language yeah so talking saying in longer words it regularly falls on the second to last syllable but in general the uh stress rules of elvish follow latin stress rules more or less okay and um so the the stress is predictable but depends on the heaviness of the syllable um so it only falls falls on the second to last syllable whether that contains a long vowel a diphthong or a vowel followed by two or more consonants so that's what you would call a heavy syllable for example you see it in isildur you see that the stress syllable has an is an I and an L, so it's a vowel followed by a consonant. Whereas okay. in Oroma, oh no, I just did Orome. it wrong, Oroma, right? Yeah. The second <laughs> syllable is O, and that's a weak syllable because there, it's just a consonant and O. So um, the rule is basically stress on the second to last syllable if the syllable is heavy, and it is heavy if it's a long vowel, if the vowel is followed by a consonant, or if a, if a, a diphthong, so two vowels. Okay. I know that can be a little bit confusing. I think it's also the the part of pronunciation where most people make like mistakes and where I mm. also I make mistakes. Uh, I think it's not too bad because um, like you still understand what what you're talking about, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's always what frustrates some people when they are constantly, you know, having their pronunciations corrected or something is it's like, well, you still know, you still know what I was saying. You still know mm-hmm. what I meant. You understand what I was, uh, you know, what word I was trying to say. We don't have to stop and correct everything because in, in some instances, Tolkien even was saying, I'm just guessing how to <laughs> say this here. So there's, at least like that, there's that anecdote that Tolkien also mispronounced Elvish. Like there are recordings of Tolkien reading in Elvish and he's not following his pronunciation words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> not even Tolkien could speak. Yes. I guess as an English speaker, I find uh, the, the idea of like stress and accents on words uh, can sometimes be difficult because in the English language, there are not really th- this concept of like putting accents and certain markings on certain mm-hmm. letters to to let you know how to say it. Um, that's not 
really a thing in English. Uh, when we have instances where there are accents on words, it's because it's a word f- uh, that is, you know, from a different language. And I say all this because, like, especially American English is a very, <laughs> it's kind of a nonsense language because we have all these rules and things that um, are, are things that like you only know because like you're a, nat- a native English speaker. And so uh, as I understand it, learning English as a second language, and maybe you mm. can, you know, maybe you have some experience about that too. Uh, I understand that English as a second language is very hard, I think, because probably there aren't those you know, accent marks and things to let you know where to put, you know, the emphasis and the stress on on words like there is in, mm. in a lot of other languages. Yeah, the problem with English is that the, the stress pl- placement is basically flexible. So you can't predict it. Mm-hmm. And in yes. Elvish, uh, you can predict it. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for learners, that's very hard. Yeah, I, I know there are some examples how German speakers pronounce English words incorrectly because they trying like applying rules to stress placements where there aren't any so you just have to learn where the stress falls i will type a word in the chat and then you have to pronounce it okay (laughs) hotel yeah right so german speakers would say hotel even though in german it's called hotel so it's the Uh same syllable stressed as in english but for some reason german speakers have decided that the stress in english must for the second uh must be differently so they say hotel Instead mm. of hotel, tell yeah, yeah, Ho- hotel. See, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's. <laughs> it's very confusing. It gets really, yeah, it gets really funny when you stop and you, exactly you say you know like hotel or ho- uh, sorry, say it the the other way. Hotel, hotel, ho- yeah, hotel <laughs> versus hotel, yeah. <laughs> so, um, when it comes to writing down all of these pronunciations, what what is that like? By the time we get to the third age the scripts and letters used mostly they're of um uh now now i'm really overthinking how i'm saying words <laughs> eldarin of eldarin origin and are pretty old the two main things that we're going to talk about now are tenguar mm-hmm. at least that's how i'm pronouncing it which are letters and then kirtar or kirth Mm-hmm. which are runes. You can correct me if this is wrong, but I interpret runes to be um, more like a symbol where you can write a rune and it's a representative of maybe um, an idea rather than, you know, a letter. You have to put multiple letters together to make a word. Um, mm-hmm. Is that correct? Or what is the correct way to talk about what a rune is? Uh, I think what talking is saying here is that um these are just labels like there are these two writing systems and he's like giving them labels in his text so there's a he needs a way to easily refer in english to one writing system versus the other so he calls the tengwas letters and the okay kirth he calls runes because they look a little bit like the runes of our world um but i don't think there's any deeper concept about them so it's also, well, at least it's not how they work. Like they're both kind of alphabetic writing systems. And um, yeah, I, I think it's just labels. Okay, I understand now. So the Tenguar, the letters, were created for writing with a brush and pen. So very similar to how we write things today. And the Kirth, 
were created for inscriptions in things. Tenguar was the more ancient of the two. It was developed by the Noldor later when it was, I think, officially starting to be um, like written down. It says the Tenguar of Rumil. That is the oldest mm-hmm. of the Eldarin letters, these letters. And the Tenguar of Feanor is what was brought over um to Middle-earth by the exiled Noldor. And mm-hmm. so that's later on what um, the Edain, the, the the men who were friends of, with the elves, and the Numenorians. So they used the Tenguar of Feanor, um, which were kind of like adaptations and improvements uh, upon the Tenguar of Rumil, which were kind of the, the first origins of those letters. Yeah. This is writing system we're talking called Sarati. Have you ever heard about Sarati? No, I don't think so. Okay, please Google it now because it's <laughs> super interesting. It's like these letters of Rumil. Uh, they actually exist. They um, Tolkien is basically following his own creation of the Elvish writing system here. So he first created a, a script which is called Sarati, and that's the Tengwa of Rumil. And then he, during the years, he derived the or he developed the Tengwa. And he stopped using Sarati. Interesting, because it's ri- it looks like it's written vertically yeah. as opposed to horizontally. It is. Th- some of the letters look a little bit like Tengwa letters. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, also I can the, see that. Like the idea behind the letters that Tolkien is going to explain in this appendix is... Um, I think it's very interesting because very few people, as I said, know about this, that Tolkien actually developed the script and they know, oh, there's this Alfred of Rumil, whatever, it's the predecessor of the mm-hmm. of the of the Tengma we know but few people know there's actually this script that Tolkien developed in real life <laughs> and um yeah it's like he knows that in real life languages have predecessors you know languages have a starting point that they evolve from and so he made the elven language or you know or, or I guess writing these scripts and then kind of was like well what would it have started out as or what are some other variations on it that would be explained for why did this one version survive to middle earth but one other version didn't Mm. um and going into all of those details uh so that is the the uh tenguar the um feanorian letters uh the kirth the runes were devised by the sindar so these Mm. are the elves who stayed in Beleriand. They did not go over to Valinor. So this is the the writing system that they came up with. Mm. And it's important that these runes were not devised by the dwarves because I think many people associate them mainly with dwarves and then they think with the dwarves. Yeah, yeah. dwarves created them, but it's actually it were the elves. Yeah, which um would make sense because the dwarves in the history um, of reminder for everyone, um the elves were the first you know people to awaken followed by men and then dwarves. So it makes sense that the dwarves, when they, uh, you know, came to start exploring the land, that there would already be this established writing system, uh, you know, language system that they would learn about from the elves. It was uh, long used only for inscribing names and brief memorials upon wood or stone. 
to that origin, they owe their angular shapes and they're very similar to runes of our time. Mm -hmm. So I guess exactly like you said, kind of, you know, um, explaining for our reference, it looks more like runes would be because of the of the instruments that they would use to create it. And so, you know, think about if you were carving something into wood or stone, it's a lot harder to do those those curves like in, you know, an A or an O or something. So it's a lot sharper and angular. Mm. And also in in The Hobbit, Tolkien is still using the actual runes, like Germanic runes in a little like it's not exactly the same as you would, for example, use for old English to write in runes. Um, but again, he was unsatisfied with this, as he was with the dwarves' names, and then he the dwarves dwarfs names, and then he uh, came up with this new runic writing system that he is presenting to us here. So yeah, this is what uh, the dwarves take on to use. Eventually, it is kind of adapted into what becomes the alphabet of Dairon. I think it's Dairon, the- but I'm not sure. Dairon? Oh, okay. Because there are no dots on the letter, so the A and E should be one sound, so it's okay. Dairon. <laughs> Dairon, okay. He was the, um, that's right, the minstrel and lore master of King Thingol in Doriath, the, the leaders, you know, of the Sindar which is who developed this language, or not this language, this writing system. Mm -hmm. The elves of the West, indeed, for the most part, gave up use of runes altogether um, because they later adopted the Feanorian letters, Mm -hmm. the, what do we call them, the Tengwar. But in Oregion, the alphabet of Dairon was maintained and used, and it was passed on to the dwarves of Moria, where it became their more favored writing system and they kind of through their variations over the years it adapted into anger anger thus moria or the long rune rose of moria so um they've kind of you know made their own adaptation Mm -hmm. on this writing system and that's why it's now associated with dwarves and not with elves Mm -hmm. yeah the elves mostly you know by the time we get to the the third age they it's it's the dwarves who are you using this this rune system more because the other the elves would have adapted to the the other writing system mm-hmm. um and so if you were to uh i'll leave links in the episode description listeners if you want the visual of the alphabets and the letters but if you were to look at these two side by side you would you would think, oh, okay, that's the Elvish, and that's you know the dwarf mm-hmm. uh, alphabets. Like you would look at these, and you would kind of naturally associate them. So Tenguar, the Feanorian letters, are uh, a lot more. They're a lot more curved again, because thinking about they would have been writing them with a pen or a brush and ink, um, as opposed to carving it into something. I would say I'm going to do a very (laughs) terrible job of trying to verbally describe what some of these look (laughs) like, um, just to to give people an idea. So kind of the, there are these, uh, uh, for the main 24 letters, there are these four base letters. Um, The first one looks like a P, but the loop on on the P hasn't closed all the way. The next one is still a P, but it has a little line going out from under the loop. The next one is like a U if someone brought the line on the end of the U down further. 
And then the next one is that same letter, but with a line on the top kind of closing off the U. So that's my very basic rudimentary explanation of these. And then as you move down and there are further variations on each letters, you know, sometimes the P symbol is turned upside down and it looks more like a B or it's turned sideways and it looks like a D or an extra loop is added and it looks like an M. This is the best I could come up with after reading this explanation for like how we interpret these letters and like what they mean and everything. So correct me if I'm wrong. The variations on these letters tell us like how to pronounce it and like what we're doing with it. uh, It signifies what you're doing like with your throat or your tongue or like the way that your (laughs) mouth is like forming that sound. And and that's the best I could come up with. (laughs) Yeah. Have you you ever seen the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet? Uh, Because the way this works, like Tengwa works, is very similar to um, other like systematic, however you want to call it, displays of sounds. So... um, if you have a look at the IPA... <laughs> yes, I'm looking at this now, yeah. In the, in the the top chart, you see that like the columns are for the place of articulation and then the lines are for the manner of articulation. So, for example, bilabial means these sounds are produced with both lips. That's what bilabial means in Latin, basically. Oh! So, for example, if you do a, a B, then you notice that your lips are closed... And then mm-hmm. suddenly they're opened and then you have a little kind of an explosion, which you can feel if you put your, your hand in front of your mouth. It's like, boom. Yes. And um, that's why they're called plosives. So because they're explosive. This is fascinating, <laughs> you know, because it's it, as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, that does that, that does make sense, you know, like based on what I know about yeah. how I'm saying letters. Yeah. So the IPA is a, it's a way to sort the sounds of these languages in a way by... Um, describing according to their place of articulation and their manner of articulation. So place of articulation, for example, B would be uh, bilabial to both lips. And then the manner is plosive because it has this specific way of articulating where you close somewhere in your mouth, you make a closure somewhere in the mouth, and then you suddenly let, let it explode. Fascinating, fascinating, yeah. Yeah, then for example, with the fricatives, for example, you have F, and if F is labiodental, it means that you're... Um, you are uh, using your your teeth and your lips. Yeah, and the upper yeah. teeth teeth are on the lips, and yeah. then you are not making a closure, but you you close your lips and your teeth so far together. There's an air of stream, a, a stream of air coming out of your mouth, which produces a little hissing sound. Yes, it, that's the way the IPA is laid out, and the tengwa are more or less laid on the same way. So the columns yeah, in the yeah. tengwa, yeah. They are the, the, the place of articulation and then the grades, as Tolkien calls them, the lines. They are the manner of articulation. Um, so, for Got example, it, yeah. uh, the first column are the alveolas, more or less. The second one are the, the labials, so the B series, the bilabial ones. Mm-hmm. And then the first line or first grade, as Tolkien calls it, they are the, the voiceless plosives. So uh, voiceless and voiced, the difference is that if a sound is voiceless, then your vocal cords are open. And if it's voiced, they are vibrating. So you can feel it if you put your uh, hand to the to your throat mm-hmm. and you say s and z, you feel that when you say s, nothing happens. But if you say z, 
you feel the vibration of the vocal cords. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what, because yeah, he uses um, that phrase a couple times about, you know, voiceless or voiced. So that was confusing to me because I was like, but you're still saying <laughs> everything you're doing is still making a sound. So that is what, what does that mean? Okay, que uh, question for you. So there are the um, 24 primary letters, it says. And then there are an additional 12. What was the, the point of those? And how are they different from the primary ones? The point is that they are additional. <laughs> oh, okay, that's it. Um, so as you can see, they don't fit this neat system of bows yeah, and stems. Yeah, they just don't fit the pattern. Yeah. Okay. And I think these are shapes that Tolkien especially liked. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, that he just had these extra letters that he liked so he wanted to include them but they didn't fit neatly into yeah. the into the pattern yeah yeah i think what's so confusing or tangled for many people is that talking says there is this underlying idea of how to use them but then there are also conventions which different people have used for different languages and that's super confusing because every time you want to write in tangwa you have to decide which language am i going to write in which mode so depending on which uh, uh, column you're using for which kind of sounds. And this is so confusing because there's a thousand ways to write Tengwa. Well, not a thousand, but very many different... Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Very many, ma many different ways. Yeah, what you were saying about deciding what mode to put it in, it says that there is no mode for the representation of English. So we're not going to be seeing these letters in a combination that would like... Uh, where, where we would be able to pronounce things, you know, in, uh, in English. Just like with any alphabet, there are names for all of the letters. I don't think we'll go through, you know, <laughs> Uh, all of them because we'll be here for a while <laughs> um uh, but i'll leave a link in the episode description uh again for all of these resources if you're curious and you want to follow along so the first the very first one we're just going to read uh across tinko parma calma and then oh i can't say how how do you pronounce the last one uh, i think it's Quessa. Quesa. Okay, yeah. So th those are the main ones. I found it interesting because I thought that they would all. I thought when you so when you move down the the columns, as he calls them, uh, Tamar. As you move down the columns, I thought there would be variations off of Tinko, um, but it goes Ando, Thule, or Sule, Anto, Newman, and Ore. So. None of those are, you know, remotely the same name. No. Um, maybe a little bit of, you know, Tinko, Ando, and Anto. <laughs> these are actually words from Quenya. So um, these are not made up. Well, of course they're made up. They're made up by talking, yeah. but they're yeah, in, yeah. Wor in <laughs> words, they're yeah. not made up. <laughs> so um, it's like, you know, these alphabets people use for spelling names on the phone. So if you say, like, if I have to say my name in English, then I say, like, Oh, it starts with the letter Z or Z. And then people are like, what? And I say Z as in zebra or whatever. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the um, United States, we have, I forget, I don't know what, the, I don't know what the actual name for it mm -hmm. is, but the, it, it's a like military alphabet and it's a um, predetermined thing where mm. it's um, like B is Bravo, T is Tango, yeah. because in certain 
uh, like I know uh, I have a uh, I have a friend who his old job was a lot of sales calls and he always had to you have to follow that you can't just make up your own you can't say like A is an apple you have to um say whatever the 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 military alphabet is yeah. but like that's what the elves did as well so they devised yeah. names for each of the letters and then later when people stopped speaking Quenya because they were now speaking Sinarin and then Westron they still used these names of the letters so it's like for example, in English, you say H to the ha sound, even though it's like in German, it's called ha as it is pronounced basically. But in English, mm-hmm. it's called H because the name of the letter was adopted from French, where, as you may know, the H is silent. So they needed a, a way to say it because they couldn't say ha anymore because the ha yeah. didn't exist anymore. So they had to say H and then English adopted that. And that's why H is called H in English. So it's the same Thing. Even though people would now speak Sindarin and not say Parma for book anymore, they would still use this name for the letter. Yeah. So listeners, if you want to uh, make sure that you're going to win at your next round <laughs> of Tolkien bar trivia, this could be a cool thing to, <laughs> to learn the, the Tenguar alphabet and the names of, of the letters and, and everything. Moving on finally to the runes again, the Kirth. It was originally devised to represent the sounds of Sindarin. Wait, Sindar. Sindarin, probably. Sindarin only. It says that um, the version that is put into the book, he says the dwarves of Moria, as can be seen, introduced a number of unsystematic changes in value. So originally it was uh, for the elvish sounds, but obviously the dwarves say things differently. So they added in a couple, um, there are a couple other things and variations that work better for their languages and how they, you know, say them or use them. Um, which Tolkien calls unsystematic changes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the Kirth used to be systematic, like the Tengwa, not as systematic. So it's not as neatly arranged in rows and or grades and columns, uh, whatever. What is it? Mm-hmm. But uh, they're still systematic. So, for example, you can see that the P and the B are the... This thing that looks like a P is also a P, but then the one that looks like an R... It's actually a B, so it's a P with a it's one more strike, and that means it's voiced. Um, so th- again, the shape of the letter is meaningful. Yes, yeah. But then the dwarves came and made everything. (laughs) So it says, uh, adding a stroke to a branch added voice. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were talking about earlier, where you can feel your vocal cords Mm -hmm. kind of rumbling and and moving. Reversing the curve. So, oh, I guess uh, uh, flipping it around. Opening to a a spirit. What is spirit? Uh, It's another word for fricative. It's these. Okay. The one where you have this. Almost closure in the vibration, the hissing. Got it. Okay. And then uh, placing the branch on both sides of the stem added voice and nasality. So that is how you can uh, interpret, you know, these these letters, these runes. Mm -hmm. Again, these will be, I think, more, um, not more because the Feanorian letters are also pretty... Um, they're both pretty, I would say, recognizable as you would look at these and go, oh, yeah, those are the Lord of the Rings, you <laughs> yeah. know, languages, you know. But the funny thing is, with this chart, you can't read the letters that are used in The Hobbit. You know, at the beginning of The Hobbit, at the front page, you have these runic writing, also the writing on the map, but you can't w- read these with this chart because this chart was developed after the 
publication of The Hobbit. As I said earlier, Tolkien was unsatisfied with the way he used the runes because he had actually used the old English runes. And he said, makes no sense that people in Middle-earth would use old English runes, so I have to write my own. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't find it. But he mentions at some point, like, as you can see on the title page, but also on the title page is not really correct anymore so i think the problem was when he uh, when he sent them off to the printers he later recognized that there were mistakes in them so in order to say it's not my fault actually it was a like a, a bad gondorian writer who did this <laughs> like a scribe make them a scribe messed, messed it up, up. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny yeah yeah, those are the alphabets <laughs> and the letters and the pronunciations of Middle Earth. Very complicated, complex. And um, the only other time I've been, you know, almost as confused is when there's a chapter in the Silmarillion called The Realms of Beleriand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like geographical <laughs> descriptions I, it was so hard for me to read I was just so I just kind of gave up when I was reading that and I was like I'm just gonna read this and see what see what sticks in my brain <laughs> yeah. what stands out so I kind of did the same thing with this one um just to see if I could get you know even a basic understanding of how he you know started constructing these languages obviously as I'm sure you know uh because you are a PhD student <laughs> of linguistics uh that is a very uh dense and complex topic so uh that's you know, it's hard enough to to study it and understand it when you're looking at it in, you know, your native language, but when you're looking at it in a fictional world mm -hmm. as well, that adds another layer onto it. So th thank you for, for coming on to help us go through it all. The way Tolkien presents these things, or as he describes them, are not intuitive for us today, because he's using this very prose style, like he's saying mm. he's all yes. putting it in like sentences and we would today probably just say here's a here's a chart and here's a list and here are bullet points whatsoever but Tolkien doesn't do this and that's very hard to process for us today and um but it's very again as I said earlier it's very close to how linguists would be describing real languages at Tolkien's time yes yeah and you know I would also I, I've said it I say it all the time but um you know Tolkien it there's really no other uh I don't think we have come across authors quite like Tolkien um you know since because he he put such a level of attention and detail into his works and into creating his world that we really it, it's just so uncommon these days not to say that there aren't also valuable and wonderful books and stories today because there definitely are they're just um they're just different and Tolkien was you know uh, a different guy he did things differently <laughs> and we are you know blessed to have his his works to still uh you know connect through and and look through today Tolkien described a lot lots of things that we just don't think about in our daily life yes totally uh well Maria thank you again for joining <laughs> us this was uh, a very in-depth conversation <laughs> that um, I, I, I'm glad to have had you on to, to provide all of this insight to, to things that I didn't know about. Um, where can people uh, find you on the internet? Do you have um, like social media handles or um, projects or anything that you're working on that people can uh, follow you? Yeah, you can definitely follow me on Twitter still. <laughs> so, uh, I'm called 
die Tweeterei, which unfortunately is German. So it's called, spelled like die. I'm sorry, but die. It's the, it's the German article. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave everything. Uh, I'll link everything in the episode description. Yeah. Um, so you can give her a follow and check her out. And I tweet about mostly about either talking or linguistics and mostly talking related linguistic stuff. Uh, so it's often very linguists orientated, I would say. But um, And uh, there you can also find a link to my academia account where I posted some a paper, for example, about the, the paper I was talking about earlier about Adunaic and Semitic languages. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, listeners, if this is a topic that um, uh, you're interested in learning more about and you want people who are smarter than me to uh, teach you those things, that that's where you can find all of that and dive into this topic and, and explore it more to, to your interests. That's what I'm talking about as a proud member of WBNE. If you want to learn more about the network, you can go to WBNE.org. The cover is by Vaishan Brandon. You can support him on Instagram at Vaishan Designs. You can get merch for That's What I'm Talking About by going to tpublic.com slash user slash Pod. You can follow the podcast on social media at Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at mcwhatsup and on Instagram at mcturndownforwhat. If you want to support That's What I'm Talking About, you can become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Pod to explore the different levels of support that are available. I appreciate every person who wants to support the podcast in this capacity. Um, it is so easy in this world to not show enthusiasm for things uh, and to not show your support. So the fact that people go out of the way to show their support is amazing, such as this week's sponsor, Josh. Josh, thank you so much for supporting That's What I'm Talking About, for remaining a supporter for so long. I appreciate that so much. And as always, if you like what you're listening to, please make sure to rate and review. Maria, thank you again for joining us. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I don't know. In my other podcast, like my own podcast, I always we always finish with the, with um, read more Tolkien. So I think that's going to be my final words. So read more Tolkien. And that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm.